Hi listeners, Alex here, assistant producer for the Sausage of Science podcast. Before we begin, a quick note of warning. This week's episode contains some explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Chris, you are recording from a real interesting location today. I feel like a real podcaster because I always hear about them recording from closets and under bed sheets and stuff to get a good sound quality. So here I am in my closet. Buffered by clothes and dogs. (laughs) Clothes, dogs, guitar. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you by... Uh, chaos. Chaos. <laughs> chaos, patience, and compassion. Today, we are continuing this kind of promotion of the AJHB Volume 33, Issue 2, special issue, Biocultural Approaches to the Plasticity of the Human Skeleton. And we're bringing on one of those contributors, who is Samantha Holder. And she is a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Georgia. And No surprise, given what this special issue is, she specializes in bioarchaeology. Hi, Samantha. Hi. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are (laughs) y'all? Doing okay. I'm Kara. I don't think we've ever formally met, so it's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you as well. And poor Chris, he is in his closet in his house because work is being done at his house. Um, He's surrounded by clothes and four dogs with constant interruptions from workers. So today's episode is going to be real interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sounds like it. (laughs) So we were just introducing you and saying you're a PhD candidate at the University of Georgia, and you have this new article called An Integrative Approach to Studying Plasticity in Growth, Disruption, and Outcomes, a Bioarchaeological Case Study of the Napoleonic soldiers, just part of the special issue that just came out for AJHB. And so really excited to talk about that today. But as always, before we get to the work, we like to learn about you. We really enjoy learning your kind of origin story and how you got interested in anthropology and the how and why you decided to pursue it as a career. So for me, I was never that kid that really like had a career path in mind when I was younger. Like I always changed my mind several times and that really carried through in college as well. I think I officially changed my major at least three times and unofficially several more. (laughs) And I remember taking an intro to archaeology class and I wasn't particularly interested in focusing on archaeology, but I was interested in anthropology more broadly. So as an undergrad, I was really interested in in living humans and this sort of intersection of biology and culture. And And also, where was your undergrad degree? Oh, yes. Um, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, Pitt, which I grew up in Florida. So moving from like a very warm climate to, to me, what is the far north and very cold was quite an adjustment. But I love Pitt. I I loved going there and, and the city. It was my first real experience of living in a city. But Yeah, so at at Pitt, I changed my major several times. And uh, during my senior year, I started to focus on researching this intersection of human biology and culture. And at that time, I realized I'm still very new to this. So I need more time to be able to explore and see like what directions I want to go in. So I used 
applying to graduate school as an opportunity to sort of direct what direction my research or interests would go in. So I applied to a number of different programs in a number of different areas. I applied to some programs for ethnobotany and biocultural medical anthropology. I think I applied to one program to focus in forensic anthropology. And then I ended up choosing the University of Central Florida for my master's, where I originally was focused in evolutionary anthropology. But as I was getting close to finishing my undergraduate degree, I really started to become more and more interested in bioarchaeology and studying human biology through the skeleton. And so once I, I made it to UCF, I ended up switching to working with my MA advisor, Tasha Dupre. And that's when I really started to focus on, on bioarchaeology, which has kind of led me to my current research trajectory. And so not in any way, shape, or form did Pittsburgh winters drive you back to a Southern climate. <laughs> I was PhD. definitely a part of it. <laughs> I noticed a pattern. <laughs> Real yeah, quick. it's really funny. I think all of the programs that I applied to for my master's and my PhD as well were definitely a lot more Southern and like warmer climates. When I was looking at PhD programs, Tasha recommended some in Canada and I was like, mm-mm, it is too cold for me there. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I also resonate with that path of applying to several different options to see what happened. I did something similar and I think you're one of the first who have expressed that path as well here on the show. For listeners out there, right? You don't need to know when you go off to grad school what you want to do. And a lot of folks come to anthropology because we like to advertise it as you can study anything you want. That has to do with humans. And sometimes you figure that out based on the project that you fall into. So I'm guessing this is part of your dissertation work, but maybe not. Tell us about what you're up to as a doctoral candidate. Yeah, so this was actually kind of a side project, but related to my dissertation project in some ways. So my dissertation research focuses on the role of imperialism and warfare in shaping the biology of imperial soldiers that are either forcibly or voluntarily tasked with expanding European empires in the 19th century. So I'm taking a comparative approach comparing soldiers in Napoleon's Grand Army, the Imperial Russian Army, and the British Royal Navy to look at how these different empires first recruited soldiers um, and servicemen, and then also how their biology changed over time, like through military service. So how did you get interested in that? Because you went from, I have no clue what I want to do in anthropology <laughs> to I am going to work with imperial soldiers from here, here, and here. And so, you know, that's an interesting trajectory arc from the super general to really specific. So yeah. give us a little bit of detail on that. During my master's, I originally was interested, once I got onto the sort of bioarchaeology track, I was interested in working in Peru. And I already had written a proposal for my MA thesis and had worked out a plan with a field school there to collect data and samples and do research there. However, once I got down there, the situation was a little bit more complex than I realized. And I wasn't able to get permits in time and do sorts of things that I didn't realize at that time were part of the process. And so I came back from the field and I went from having this or what I thought was well-organized and well-thought-out plan to like having no idea what I was going to do. 
And my MA advisor, Tasha, her and some other professors from the University of Central Florida had just begun a collaborative research project with researchers from Vilnius University in Lithuania to do a series of stable isotope studies to reconstruct diet mobility over a long time period ranging from sites throughout Lithuania from like the medieval period all the way through the 1800s. And so I came to Tasha and I was like, well, my project didn't work out. I don't know what to do. Please help me. (laughs) And she was very understanding. And she's like, you know, I just started this project. One of the first questions that we're interested in, we have these remains from Napoleonic soldiers. And we know the context that they came from was the Russian campaign of 1812, which was particularly tragic in just the loss of human life, like during the retreat that followed that campaign with thousands and thousands of soldiers dying of typhus, starvation, hypothermia. And her and our primary collaborator, Romantis Yankowskis, were interested in, can we detect some of these disease and, you know, starvation processes in the biochemistry of the bone. So that's really how it started. And then over time, I became interested more in some of these broader, like social forces and processes that were acting on the soldiers and taking less of that methods focused approach. So my MA thesis focused on the starvation aspect and and characterizing long-term diet. And now that's grown in my dissertation to do more of a, a comparative approach to see just the different ways that imperialism shaped soldier biology and ways that we can detect that in human bone. So um, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners might be as sort of forgetful in their world history as I was. I don't know <laughs> if I learned about the Napoleonic Wars in high school. This was never touched on in my education growing but, up. <laughs> I learned a lot about it from the Revolutions podcast and then also reading the Sharp series, which is the Napoleonic Wars from the side of the British. So what I know is that was a a shit show for Napoleon. He pushed into Russia uh, and basically almost everybody died. Is this kind of? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I think a, a shit show is like a great way to describe it. One of the things that I get frustrated about in reading like different historical analyses is like Napoleon is often credited with being this sort of like revolutionary strategist when it comes to warfare and revolutionizing how it's conducted. But he was a fucking asshole with total disregard for human life. That does not get emphasized enough sometimes. And this campaign is like really emblematic of that. So in the early in 1812, Napoleon decided to, or well, prior to this, but took action on Um, invading Russia under the guise of protecting Poland and keeping Russia out of Europe. But really, he just wanted to grow his own empire and power. And so he amassed an army of over 600,000 people from all across Europe, less than half were French. So it was really a lot of soldiers were being conscripted from annexed states, and then also through allies of Napoleon. And so this large army traveled through Europe onto Russia and Russian Tsar Alexander realized very quickly with this, you know, huge army that the Russians weren't going to win in this sort of head-to-head battle. So there were some initial battles along the way, but the Russians then took the strategy of retreating farther and farther into Russian territory and burning the landscape. Because one of the things that strategies that Napoleon took in order to 
you know, amass these large armies and be so quick moving across the landscape compared to how people did it in the past was that they didn't carry a lot of resources, particularly food resources with them. They really relied on soldiers doing these sorts of living off the land strategies, which was like foraging and stealing foods from local people. And so the Russian soldiers just sort of burned the landscape, kept moving farther into Russia. And so in October, when the French army arrives in Moscow, it's like pretty much abandoned. And they waited there for, you know, just over a month. And for Game of Thrones reference, they knew winter was coming and they did not want to be there the Russian winter. They decided to retreat. But at that point, it was already too late. The resources were depleted. There's already a typhus epidemic outbreak happening within the army. They're, the soldiers are wearing their you know, summer uniforms, which are already sort of in disarray, and it's November and, and very cold. So thousands and thousands of, of soldiers died along the way, and I think an estimated like 20,000 died in Lithuania alone. And the research site that I work at, um, Shiaudis Miastelis, is located in Vilnius, which is the present day capital of Lithuania, but during this time was part of the Russian empire. And so as Napoleon retreated and they arrived in Vilnius, even though there was, you know, plenty of food and shelter, like thousands of people just perished based on all of this chaos and things that had been happening as they were retreating, as the Russian army moved through, um, at this point, pursuing the French army, they collected, you know, all the remains of these perished soldiers and What's like particularly tragic to me is that they were buried in mass graves throughout the city that were actually trenches that they themselves, these soldiers had dug on their march to Moscow as part of defensive barriers that they were kind of setting up along the way in the, the Russian territory. Wow, that's an incredibly upsetting and depressing story, but it links well, of course, to your work. And so let's talk a little bit about the skeletal signals that you can detect of this really awful time period. So what are we seeing among these Napoleonic soldiers and how did you even get access to it? Where did you go? Give us a little bit of the details. Like I mentioned, the initial project with Tasha and and Remus, I joined actually much later. So there had been a, a number of research studies already done before even the collaborations with Vilnius and UCF. One had been focused on actually identifying typhus through DNA analysis of dental pulp of soldiers, which I thought was really neat. Um, And then also there had been previous studies on dental disease and stature and different things that my collaborators in Lithuania had done. And so my research focuses more on biochemical indicators and specifically stable isotope analysis. So while their deaths were so tragic, I'm interested in their life more so. And so like looking at that time period before and during military service and looking at how changes in diet can reflect some of these larger social forces, as well as soldier agency, right? Because even within these very strict hierarchical systems that we have in these imperial armies, the day-to-day life of soldiers on campaign, like they were able to like forage and and do things. And so uh, trying to look at some of those aspects by reconstructing that. And so with my dissertation, what I'm finding is there was so much variation in terms of, of diet of these different soldiers, both before and during military service, that's likely related to 
their own backgrounds, being from all sorts of different places, having different, you know, socioeconomic statuses and, and things like that, and then how access changed during military service. And, and this project is actually much different than a lot of my other work because it focuses much more on looking at the growth trajectory. So you have a sample of people who essentially they're choosing the, the healthiest, presumably, people to serve in the military, but how healthy were they and what were the sort of different life histories and, and childhood experiences that these different soldiers had and what sort of variation we can detect in that. Stable isotope analysis, I'm vaguely familiar with the work of Matt Sponheimer and James Loudon, who work with primates and human ancestors. Is that what we're talking about? And can you tell us a little bit about what you do, what that looks like? Yes, absolutely. So stable isotope analysis, particularly with reconstructing diet, we're primarily focused on carbon and nitrogen. And so carbon in particular varies based on different photosynthetic pathways of plants. Um, So we can tell different classes of plants. So for example, like most vegetables, particular grains such as, you know, barley, wheat, and rye have this like C3 type of isotope signature. And then C4 plants, which we're looking at like maize, millet, sorghum, those have very different carbon isotope signature. And those signatures in the plants then move consistently through the food web um, so that animals and people consuming those plants are going to carry those in their own tissues. And then with nitrogen, we're able to look at sort of the trophic position. So where an organism is in the food web and with humans, it tells more about whether people are eating primarily vegetarian diets versus like animal products versus, you know, fish types of foods. And so together they can tell you about general types of consumption patterns and where those foods are coming from terrestrial versus like aquatic ecosystems. Thank you for the refresher, because for those of us who don't use isotopic analysis, <laughs> like sometimes we have this vague thing, talk about, you know, C14, stuff like that with classes now and again, but we often just forget the details. So with the, the Napoleonic soldiers looking at their growth disruption and plasticity outcomes, what were your hypotheses and what drove that hypothesis, which then turned out to be completely wrong when you actually yeah. the results. So tell us how you kind of started with the hypothesis and then what those results told you. Based on doing like previous research and some of the theoretical frameworks that we were using, I, my colleagues and I thought, well, you know, the more growth disruption that these soldiers experienced during childhood, both in terms of like timing and severity and the number, we expected that to have like a cumulative negative effect on the long-term growth outcomes. But what I discovered was, or what we discovered, was that it was much more complex and and that wasn't totally the case. So in the case of timing... Damn uh, it, humans and your complexity (laughs) and variation. Why can't you just stick to one pattern? Exactly. I know. I mean, it made for not a neat story, like not a neatly told story. One of the things I really liked about being a part of this special issue and looking at the biocultural pathways, it was a chance to engage with that messiness a a bit more than I might otherwise. But yeah, it was really unexpected. So like certain things like age at last formation. So we're looking at childhood growth disruption and linear enamel hypoplasia on the teeth, which is basically 
T form at very specific time ranges and incrementally over childhood. And, you know, during periods of what we very vaguely term stress, which can be psychosocial, nutritional disease can sort of cause these shifts in energy that's used to build tissues into sort of maintenance and survival. And so we did find was these stress events later on in life, those individuals tended to have shorter stature. I also expected to see like the more disruption to have shorter stature, but that was not the case. Actually, the taller soldiers had more growth disruption events. And so it was quite surprising, but I think also not surprising (laughs) because this is such a diverse group in terms of their background where they were coming from. And then also the complexity of the relationships between like short-term stress events and long-term growth trajectories. And it really does speak to plasticity and human growth patterns. So does what you looked at tell you more about who the people were and their various backgrounds? As you said, Napoleon was basically conscripting people here, there, and everywhere as cannon fodder. Or does it tell you specifically about that ass-kicking winter withdrawal? Definitely more of their lives before. So to me, what it's indicating is sort of what these childhood experiences, access to, you know, dietary resources, general health, and how they were really selecting from what is perceived as the healthiest people. And I think that is reflected because even in our findings, a majority of soldiers, while a majority of them did have at least one growth disruption, they were typically mild to moderate. And most of them occurred before the age of four. So it seems like what we're finding with historical records is that that's holding true with a lot of the skeletal evidence is that the healthiest individuals were being selected. So while there was certainly variation, both in terms of growth disruption in childhood and growth outcomes, it's only a, a limited amount of that variation is explained by the growth disruption itself. So I'm just trying to clarify for my own brain, which I'm imagining might be helpful for listeners. So we obviously have this giant convenience sample of people who died. We're not really looking at the factors associated with their death because we know those. We know they were conscripted. We know they were in a withdrawal. What we're trying to understand is who these people were before Napoleon grabbed them. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So very much capturing the time period before they were even conscripted in the army, their childhood and early adult life, and not sort of these outcomes in Russian campaigns specifically. Your ability to speak to the veracity and truthfulness of games must be really, really excellent. You, you must be a fun at parties. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I uh, I feel very passionately about it. I think that definitely comes through to people when I talk about it, which, yeah, sometimes is popular parties and sometimes not so much. <laughs> it depends on the party. Exactly. I feel like it sounds like fun. So from this and from your dissertation work, what's next? What do the next couple of years look like for you? And what's on the slate for research and anything else you got coming up? Yeah, so right now I am in the revising my dissertation stage. So I have, you know, a full draft completed. I'm really excited about that. I've been working a lot with my current advisor. I'm at the University of Georgia with Lori Reitzman, like really reining in some of the ideas and and findings. So I'm definitely interested in continuing with this work. So most of the work I've been doing previously has been focused on Napoleon and then now a bit more 
with my dissertation with Imperial Russian soldiers as well. And I'm interested in exploring that avenue a bit more because one of the interesting findings of my dissertation that I'm coming across is while there was like so much variation among the Polyonic soldiers, there is very little among Russian soldiers. And I think part of that relates to differences in recruiting strategies, as well as differences during military service, because during the period I'm looking at with Napoleonic soldiers, they were actively expanding the empire in Europe and serving on multiple campaigns and wars all across Europe and in Egypt as well in the late 1700s. But during the time period I'm looking at in Russia is immediately after this, when it was relatively peaceful. And by that, I mean fewer distant campaigns and, and active expansion. So it's more about imperial maintenance. And so I really think some of those processes are also explaining the differences. So I really want to explore that a bit more with the Russian soldiers. And with them, I have access to teeth, not just bones, which, and, you know, hearkening back to like some of the LEH stuff in childhood, I'm interested in researching where they're coming from specifically within the Russian empire, which is something I might be able to address by looking at oxygen or, or strontium isotopes in teeth, as well as childhood diets. So is limited variation something that carries through over their whole life or just later in their like sort of adult lives? Again, I still, as much as I'm in this like very narrow research frame, I still am always looking to do like new and different things. So I've been circling back a lot more to thinking about research with living humans. I actually just presented at the HBA's uh, a scoping review study that I did to look at isotope research in living humans. And so I, I'm interested in maybe pursuing some of the questions I've been thinking about in past humans with living humans as well. Well, that all sounds great. And you're in the right discipline. Of course, you know that. <laughs> For listeners, you know, we're, there's so much we can study. Is there anything that you want listeners to know? I feel like I, like, you know, the Napoleon is an asshole thing, like really, really needs to be <laughs> reiterated. Yeah. Do not um, enough people know this? Is this a misconception that like, People are deifying Napoleon. Am I unaware of this? People are aware that you, you have like the pretty solid awareness of the Napoleon complex, but I think just like the disregard for human life is something, at least for me, maybe I was just less aware until I really began doing <laughs> this research that it was just the degree to which he didn't give a shit was just <laughs> it's unnerving. I mean, I think the point is well taken. And I think that you know, Americans, we really don't, outside of the American Revolution, which we only know from our side, we know very little about world history. So very true. reading historical fiction has been a great source for me. So speaking of which, our parting question is, what do you do for fun? <laughs> and better, uh, if I were to be more, more probing, I'd be like, what historical fiction should I be reading to learn more about <laughs> Yeah, I want I all the recommendations like, on like yeah. Russian historical. But no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I feel like it's funny because I used to be really into historical fiction until I started doing historical bioarchaeology and now I'm giving away from this genre. <laughs> but for fun, my family is Italian American. And so like a very much our sort of family heritage is centered around food and the kitchen. And so for me, and, and one of the like 
I guess, few positives of COVID has been like really embracing that and, and spending more time doing a lot of like cooking and experimenting with cooking. And so my dad, he taught me how to make homemade marinara sauce when I was younger. And so I like made it every now and then and it was okay, but I've really been working on it quite a bit. We're both very competitive. So, you know, I've been shit talking him that the next time I see him, we're going to have to have a a cook off to see like whose sauce is better. (laughs) Uh, So that I definitely spend a lot of time doing that these days. And of course, binge watching, you know, things on Netflix. (laughs) We definitely love uh, cooking on the show. So meat, cooking, baking, family's Italian too. So, so similarly, uh, we were having an argument last night about the origins of Zupa Depeche. So uh, <laughs> totally appreciate all of that. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us today, for doing really interesting research. And for putting up with the various context of us not doing great today. <laughs> we really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, really great talking to y'all. And I I love the podcast and what you are doing. So I'm really grateful to be able to be a part of that and share my research. 